Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's no exaggeration to say that millions of Canadians rely on Uber as a taxi service and for food deliveries from restaurants. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business... I explored the gig economy with Vina Dubal, a professor at the University of California's Hastings College of the Law, whose research focuses on the intersection of law, technology, and labor. Uber, a California company, employs tens of thousands of Canadians, and it's at the center of a growing battle that has important implications for the economy. The battle comes down to whether gig workers, meaning the people who work for Uber, as well as many other companies, are independent contractors, or if they need to be recognized as employees who are entitled to vacation, paid leave, and various other benefits. Last week, Uber announced it struck a deal with the United Food and Commercial Workers, one of Canada's largest unions. And we don't actually know all the details of the deal, but UFCW said it has agreed to represent Uber workers when their accounts are deactivated, meaning when the company fires them and there's a dispute about why or whether it was lawful. Billions of dollars are at stake for Uber, for the hundreds of thousands of people who work in the gig economy, for consumers who use these services, for unions, and for taxpayers. Dubal is a strong critic of Uber and its business model, and she's been following the battles in the gig economy quite closely. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Vina Dubal, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Hi, Gabe. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome. Maybe we can start by talking about Uber and what we know so far about the deal that it announced last week with UFCW, one of the largest unions in Canada. So UFCW announced a contractual arrangement with Uber. So this is not something that happened through any kind of elected body, a backroom deal, if you will. The workers who have been organizing you know, very publicly with Ontario Labor Federation, for example, had no idea that this was in the works and was very surprised by it. And the USCW has not made the agreement public. So we can only conjecture as to what it says. So this is a big sticking point for workers these days. They're really mad that the agreement isn't public, but we know a few things about it. We know what UFCW tells us, which is that it includes a deal that gives UFCW the ability to appeal deactivation. So that is when um, an, an Uber worker is terminated from their job. And that's basically all we know. <laughs> um, but we've been sort of told that the deal was modeled after this oddly named Independent Drivers Guild deal that Uber made with a union in the U.S the machinists um, back in 2016. And in that agreement, when, when the machinists struck this, this secret deal with Uber in 2016, there was a lot of people who thought, you know what, maybe this is okay as an interim measure in the labor movement. And some workers thought maybe this is okay as an interim measure. Maybe this will help some workers along the way as workers push for employment status, as they push for an independent union. 
What we know about that agreement is that Uber and then eventually Lyft started paying, you know, again, strangely named Independent Drivers Guild, started paying them, so giving them money, so giving the machinists hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in turn, the Independent Drivers Guild started these deactivation panels where a worker could go to the company union, the IDG, and try and get their deactivation appealed. But since then, even representatives from the IDG have sort of decried the process. They said it's not fair. They said that the state needs to step in. And critics have really said um, over the last six years that the IDG has done Uber's bidding. So they've fought back against reforms, legislative reforms that Independent Worker Association, the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, have pushed for. And they also tried to sponsor a bill that was very similar to the proposition that Uber and Lyft filed in California, Prop 22. Um, and so they are now looked upon in the labor movement and, and by many workers in the U.S. quite skeptically. So it seems if, in fact, the UFCW agreement with Uber is at all similar to the IDG's agreement, then I think that we can understand this as a real coup for Uber as a move towards company unionism. Potentially, the things that they've agreed to are even illegal because Uber drivers and Uber Eats couriers in Canada actually have some rights that have already been determined through litigation. That was not the case in the U.S. when the IDG struck their deal with Uber back in 2016. What I understand Uber workers are fighting for, they want things like paid parental leave, vacation, things like that. Yes, absolutely. And, and this, is a, this is a neutrality agreement. They can't do any of those things. They can't fight for those things. Yeah. Maybe the best question to ask you is, what this means for the numerous stakeholders, because there's Uber, there's the people who work for Uber, there's unions and what this says about unionization, but there's also consumers who use Uber and taxpayers. In your mind, who are the winners and losers in this sort of a deal? So if we think of USCW not as a major player in the labor movement, but just as a business, as a business union, then it's great for them and for their coffers. It's good for Uber, of course, because it tends to neutralize a lot of the drivers who are organizing for employment status, litigation that is ongoing, all of the efforts for legislative reform and enforcement to ensure that these workers get all of the benefits that they deserve. It's sort of um, an attempt to say, look, that's not necessary because now USCW is taking care of the drivers. And really, essentially, this is crudely put, but again, and this is only the case if, if in fact, USCW is getting money, which it's my speculation based on what I've heard. But if, if they are getting money, then this would be understood as them being bought out, which is how workers are putting it. This is a real sellout. And so, you know, for the people who work for Uber, this is really awful. They're really being, feel like they've been let down. It's really bad for the labor movement more broadly because when workers feel like these bureaucratic institutions that are supposed to represent their interests are in cahoots with the company that exploits them, then they don't trust those institutions. For, for consumers, there is a lot of mutual benefit that consumers get from having workers who live happy, secure, fulfilled lives who are driving their bodies around. Um, those workers who have sick leave are not likely to work when they're sick. Those workers who have secure wages are not likely to drive distracted and get into an accident because they're trying so hard to eke out a living wage. 
so many reasons that a consumer would really care about the well-being of the worker, particularly in this sector. Furthermore, if a consumer gets into an accident, an issue that people don't really explore when they're thinking about how gig workers are classified, either as employees, independent contractors, or, you know, an intermediary category, you know, the determination of what the, who the worker is, what they are under the law actually determines who a consumer or a third party that is injured during the course of this business transaction who they can seek recourse from, like who is responsible if they, if the driver is not an employee or not a dependent contractor, but an independent contractor, which is again, Uber's position, then it might be that, that Uber is not at all liable. And that has been their position in litigation, you know, all over the world. That is not good for consumers. I want to just pause a second to ask you something about that. In the press release, one of the things that Uber said was that Uber and UFCW Canada have reached this agreement to press provincial governments to enact reforms that provide new benefits. And they didn't say exactly what, but they said a minimum earnings standard, a benefits fund, and I think access to workers' rights, which are all vaguely worded. But what what is at stake for taxpayers? So all of that vaguely worded language might sound good to someone who's not familiar with Uber's shenanigans, but it's the same language that they have been using from the beginning. So kind of saying like, look, we're willing to meet you halfway and give drivers some benefits, but not, you know, maybe not all of them. The reality is what they are articulating is more or less a rubber stamping of their existing business model. So notice they say, and this is the part that I think is most relevant for taxpayers, but they say minimum earnings standard. Um, their sort of innovation is to, to separate out time and pay. So, you know, from the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, as a result of labor unrest and the labor movement, workers have some control over their time and their wages because they get paid and, this is, you know, demands made by workers oftentimes by the hour, right? So all of the time that they spend laboring is remunerated. What Uber has done is they've invented a whole new category. We only see that whole new category in effect in in California, where they have uh, legally, at least in effect in California, where they've passed legislation to via propositions to make this legal. But their earning standard is basically we will only pay you after we give you work, which means that all of the quote-unquote benefits that they're providing are only to workers who work a certain number of hours after. So not when you just turn on the app and are driving around looking for work or waiting on a bicycle for work, only after you've been algorithmically allocated work. And so during a period of high demand, this might be only two-thirds of the time that you're working. During a period of low demand, this could be, you mean you're being paid for 10% of the time that you're working. And unfortunately, there's no way you have any control over how much time or how much work they actually give you. This idea of a minimum earning standard still means that drivers have no control or no ability to predict with any certainty the amount of money that they'll make in a given shift. And in, in, in fact, I mean, this is one more thing that's sort of key for people to understand is that what we've seen in California is that what their sort of additional benefit that they're providing workers in lieu of health insurance is a stipend, a small stipend for workers who, who already have health insurance. So these workers already have to have health insurance that they can't be uninsured. 
And that stipend is tied to a 30-hour minimum of time after they've been allocated work. Okay, so that means that what happens or what is happening or workers say is happening is that workers, as they get to closer to the 30-hour minimum to get their stipend, they stop receiving work. So it's not even about demand. It's about like algorithmic allocation of work. And again, that makes the situation that much more difficult. Minimum earning standard literally means nothing in the context of Uber. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things I wanted to bring up, a lot of the battle with Uber and the workers is about whether they're classified as independent contractors or as employees who are entitled to all these different benefits. But it's not just Uber. It's a lot of other tech companies. It's grocery delivery companies that use personal shoppers. It's even Amazon in some cases. I wanted to ask you, as someone who studies technology and the economy and and labor, What's driving this shift to using independent contractors? Is it the fact that these new technological platforms make it possible? Or is it the decline of unions and manufacturing in North America, you know, some combination of globalization and technology? I think it's the latter. So the basic technology that they use, the dispatching of work, um, it's not that complicated and it existed pre-Uber and Lyft. It certainly needs a smartphone. It needs the ubiquity of smartphones, but it's not a super complicated technology in and of itself. So it's not that the technology does anything here from a practical perspective. Deciding to uh, hire people as independent contractors is really a business decision that is completely separate from technology. And it's a business decision that businesses have been trying to do since the passage of work law reform in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Because having to pay workers a minimum wage, having to provide overtime, having to provide any sort of semblance of benefit, any, you know, any social insurance that's tied to employment, any, you know, health insurance, what have you, these things are expensive and it lowers profit margins. But it lowers profit margins with the idea, of course, that businesses exist in society and then the only way that it works, the only way that our economy works is that workers have enough money to actually be consumers also. And so in this instance, you have venture capitalists who can afford to fund new companies that offer anti-competitive pricing, which, which all of these companies do at their outset. You know, they're hemorrhaging money on their rides, or, or at least they were hemorrhaging money on their rides. In the U.S., they've now raised prices to the extent that they're, they're making a little bit of money. And, and people get sort of addicted to the, to the quickness of the service and workers invest their capital, their body, their spirit into this work. And then there's some stasis there, even though the work becomes exploitative. And so I think that we can understand this as a result of 
the ability of venture capitalists to invest in these practices and the unscrupulousness of their decisions to do so, we can understand it as the looking away by regulators and labor enforcers who really should have in the first instance said these are anti-competitive behaviors and stopped them or enforced existing laws and regulations against them. And then we can sort of also think of it in terms of, you know, the ideology of techno-utopianism. I still, this many years later, into the advent of this this servant technology economy, I still have to, when I talk to regulators, convince them that this is not about technology. Like, this is about exploitation. And, And the fact that they find it difficult to see past the glimmer and the the sheen of of the smartphone, it's extraordinarily frustrating because we've seen all of these practices before in the offline economy. And there's nothing really new except for the speed, the amount of capital that has been infused into this economy. You know, the basic building blocks are the same. I hear what you're saying, which is that these are all political battle in a sense, whether they get regulated into conforming to some of the labor standards that you laid out. I also wondered a little bit, though, to what extent technology has complexified everything, because if you have an an Uber driver who is sitting in a parking lot, logged into the app, awaiting a ride request, is that person working? And what if they're logged on to more than one app, like Lyft and Uber, who pays them? There are sort of technological platform questions that make this more possible than ever, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, definitely make it more possible than ever, but they don't really obfuscate the question, right? So we have existing case law in the U.S., for example, you know, it's called waiting time. And this is true in other sectors that didn't didn't have, you know, technology, was it using this sort of technology, for example, like ambulance drivers uh, have, have litigated around their waiting time as they're sitting around waiting for work. And what the courts have said is that if that time where you're waiting benefits the employer, then that time is paid time. And the law there is really speaks to, again, as I articulated earlier, other attempts that capitalists have made throughout the century to say, no, no, we're not going to pay by the hour. We're not going to pay for all the time. We're just going to pay for by the piece. We're going to pay for piecework. We're going to try and make this piecework. And so the courts have said, look, if, if a driver can use that time for their own benefit, if they actually do spend that time studying for exams, cooking dinner for their kids, doing things that benefit them, then we might imagine that that's piecework. But if they're waiting in a car in a parking lot for the next ride, that benefits the employer. So that is, again, time that should be remunerated. And then um, Uber and Lyft love to talk about this multi-apping situation where they're like, oh, but this new economy allows people to work for two companies at the same time. And the reality is, is no one wants to work for two companies at the same time. No one wants to have two phones on and are constantly checking which one might give them the better fare. That sort of happens, that sort of activity happens is because they are try- workers are trying to ensure that they're maximally paid for all the time that they spend laboring. Yeah, there, there's so many things about Uber that make this such a critical debate for how our, you know, what trajectory our economy is going to take. It ties into inequality and so much else. Was one of the interesting things to me about companies like Uber is it seems that it's almost as simple to work for Uber as it is for consumers to use it in that there's no traditional interview. You download the app, you answer some questions. You know, and if you have a car and you have a clean record, it's relatively easy to get hired. And 
that's led a lot of people to say, well, you know, Uber has created this flexibility that people want. And I wanted to put this into context where we're in this pandemic now where the move to hybrid work has created a lot of discussion about whether people want more flexibility. Do you think part of the success of these apps business model is that they recognized and prioritized that people value that kind of flexibility? Or do you think this is just, there are no other jobs available, so this is what people are taking? Yeah, I guess I would just question the premise of the the idea that these are successful business models. Part of the reason that Uber is working so hard to strike these deals in the U.S. and in Canada, the part of the reason that they're litigating all of these issues all over the world, Part of the reason that they until recently hadn't even turned a profit and, and, you know, unclear if they're going to turn another one is because the whole business model is based on the exploitation of workers and a neither food delivery nor taxi work. These have never been business models that are particularly profitable, period. But in the taxi context, they've never been profitable outside of a, of a regulatory environment. So I would just, you know, just put that out there. This is not it's not clear that these are successful business models. They are ubiquitous, certainly. Um, they're, and I think that they are ubiquitous because of unfathomable amounts of venture capital that keeps them going in hopes that eventually they this will be legal and we'll just all accept it. And and some like according to their own numbers, something like seventy percent of drivers, the vast majority of of workers who sign up for these platforms end up quitting within a year. Um, because they realize that it's, you know, really bad work. And in many cases, they're losing money. And so what they are relying on is a labor market of real full-time professional workers, profession- professional drivers, professional food delivery workers, who are in such vulnerable, precarious positions that this is really the only work that's available to them. That is why the people who do this work, both in the U.S. and Canada, are subordinated racial minority workers, right? So we know in the U.S., 70% of Lyft's workers all over the country are subordinated racial minority workers. These are people who are traditionally carved out of the labor market, you know, African-American workers, a lot of new immigrants, people of color. These are people who have a hard time getting a good job. And so there is, of course, the ease with which one could get a, you know, just download an app and start working draws people in. But for those who realize after a few months that this is, this is not good for the long term, I'm not making enough money, they leave. The people who are left in the market are are the most vulnerable, are the most marginalized, who, people who can't find work elsewhere. Um, and yes, it is true that we all, all of us, not just a few people, but all of us need flexibility in our work schedules. And that is initially appealing to, to many people. But what those professionalized drivers will tell you, the workers who have been doing this for four or five years, is that this is not any more flexible than any other kind of work because you actually have to work during particular times to make any money. They tell you when those times are. Some of the apps even have schedules that you have to like click on in order to in order to work for them and commit to working those schedules. And then for people who need to eke out a living, they're working 60, 70 hours a week and there's no flexibility in that kind of schedule. And so when I talk consumers who are sort of enamored by this this model because it's so easy and so great, I think that what many of them are missing is sort of a critical perspective on 
why people are doing this work, who is doing this work, and, um, and what flexibility actually means in that context. I wanted to pivot for a second to one of the buzzier topics these days, the, the so-called great resignation. And there's this debate right now about whether people are quitting their jobs or switching jobs in greater numbers. And I think at heart, it's a debate about whether the pandemic has fundamentally caused people to reevaluate work-life balance and what's important to them. I wanted to ask you what your take is on what's happening and, and what it may mean for the future. In the U.S., we have a real contrasting state of affairs in that on the one hand, we have really low unionization numbers, just very low. And on the other hand, we have so many people agitating in their workplaces for greater power so that they can have more of a say in things like sick leave, vacation time, wages, hours. And so there's a real hunger, I think, um, as a result of this, of, of, of how frustrated and fed up people have been during this pandemic for workers to have a say in, in their lives. We talk about the U.S. and Canada as being these like nations of freedom. Um, and, and it's true that we sort of by law have a lot of different guaranteed liberties in relationship to the state. But we spend more than half of our lives at work. And in the work context, what our employer says, does, what they, what they demand of us, you know, in many ways, we can understand our employer as a despot that decides a good, major, you know, more than a majority of our lives and what we're going to do during that time period and what the, that time period looks like, the conditions that we're, we endure during those time periods. And we're very unfree during that moment. And I think that during the pandemic, when so many people sort of started to think about how what their employer wanted them to do was going to kill them, you know, like going into work without the proper PPE or, or going into work when it was unnecessary, um, except for the, you know, the whim of the employer was that they wanted to see you. They wanted to see you there. This sort of frustration and anger that people have long had sort of boiled over. And I think it started a lot of conversations, contagious conversations, in which workers have started to realize their power. That if, in fact, you know, I band together with my coworkers and we together say, look, we want a week's vacation or a week's sick leave if we need it, then, or, you know, we need higher wages or whatever, that maybe that ask is more meaningful and more powerful than just, you know, one person saying it or one person thinking it. And I think that, that that attitude of like being fed up has really fueled what we call, you know, the cultural phenomenon, the great resignation, the economic phenomenon. Um, and, and I think it also has fueled this increased agitation in the workplace where a lot of different workplaces, workers are saying that they want a union. Unfortunately, it's quite difficult to get a union for the various reasons that scholars have discussed over the past many years. Very, very hard. The law is really turned against the workers, but but nevertheless, many workers are sort of heading in that direction, including gig workers, which is why this deal with UFCW was so troubling to the workers who have been on the front lines fighting for union recognition. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. It sounds like it also sets the table for a lot more action to come in the months ahead. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Vina. Oh, it was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. That was Vina Dubal, professor at the University of California's Hastings College of the Law. 
That's it for this week's episode of Down to Business. Thank you for listening and for supporting us by sharing episodes and rating us on your podcast app. A special thank you to this show's producer, Bryce Hall, who also composed and performed the original music featured on Down to Business. And thanks as well to Pamela Heaven, Noella Ovid, and Victoria Wells for their web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.